part because I know we're being recorded, so these are for the people that are maybe will listen in the future. And uh, my name is Robert Perez, so uh, Roberto Perez, in Espanol, okay? Um, the title of this class, if you looked on it, it said Generating Smart Trust, but after kind of tweaking it a little bit, it's just basically generating trust between two language groups at our church in a small church in Santa Paula. That was the title of my dissertation that's being signed right there. <laughs> and in two weeks, I get to graduate from Harding School of Theology, so it's been a lifetime achieve achievement, and I'm very grateful for that. Okay, so, uh, uh, for the, so generating trust between two language groups at the Santa Paula Church of Christ. Um, to today, we get to share my recent findings from my doctoral ministry degree. Um, it's funny when you do a doctorate, you're not supposed to share anything until you actually publish it. So today is the first time I get to share the magnificent seven best practices, okay? So this is new. Um, so let's start with, uh, it's not the theme verse, but this was the model verse that I used as we worked together for the last two years, three years in our church, right, Kenny? We started in 2016, even before that, but intentionally we started in 2016 meeting together the Spanish group leaders and the English group leaders intentionally started meeting together. And so here was our model verse, okay? You then, my son, he's talking to Timothy, right? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. In the Reina Valera version of this, when you see the word reliable men, it says, hombres fieles. Faithful men. My interpretation that I like is loyal men. We are in the need in the church, and in a small church of, here's my thesis, that God needs reliable, faithful, loyal, trustworthy people in the church. Men and women included. And raising faithful men, from what I've studied, and those of us that have been in the church for a long time, and studying the theology, especially of 2 Timothy and Ephesus and all the problems that were going on there, that being faithful to Jesus, faithful men comes at a cost. It's a cost. Amen? Amen. To be in ministry. So if you're here and expecting me, me to be a big nerd and showing all my smart doctoral dissertation stuff, I'm not going to do it. I'm a preacher at heart. And I want to encourage you. Yes, I'll share some things from the doctorate of the seven best practices, but mainly this is like how I preach on Sunday, okay, with some stuff. So let me give you a little bit of a background and then uh, a backstory of our church and then get to the seven best practices or the magnificent seven best practices. So when you read this, when you look at the scriptures there, when you see that verse and you look at this little chart, it's pretty clear that the fourfold plan of leadership development is really clear and explicit. Do you see that? It goes from Paul to who? To Timothy, to reliable men, and to others. The part that I focused on in my dissertation was not this part, Paul to Timothy, reliable men, and others. It's how do you get there? What is the process to go this in-between start? How do we get two groups of people to be reliable, and what do you do? So save that thought because that's the part where I gave you the seven magnificent practices. So the, kind of what we did in those meetings, I want to share what came out of that. 
But this is clear. So I'm going to read this from my notes. Paul's fourfold plan, I guess, of leadership development is very clear. You could see it right there. It's Paul, Timothy, reliable men, others. However, and this is where I took liberties in the doctorate program and being mentored by four men. One was Dan Rodriguez, Everett Hufford, who signed it, and then Dr. David Bland and Alan Black. They kind of walked me through this process. What is not clear in this, in this plan is how it was to be carried out. There's freedom there. They give us direction, but there's freedom to carry out these verses and look at them and apply it into a church. So it is this, and I called it organic entrusting process that I worked on for two or three years and I would like to share with you in class in 40 minutes, okay? <laughs> All right, so here's a statement number one. When Paul asked Timothy to entrust the gospel to reliable men or faithful men or loyal men, um, he did not tell him how to entrust. Did you get that? He didn't tell him how to do it. And, and I want you to contemplate on that because I'm going to give you the answer to that. He just told him to do it and trust to reliable men. One commentator um, that wrote a comment on this verse raised a question about this verse, and this is what he said. He says, how did Paul accomplish this training? And he's specifically mentioning, talking about this fourfold process. How did Paul accomplish this training? And here's what he said. Scripture isn't clear. Okay, scripture isn't clear. However, it appears that his practice, and he's talking about Paul, was to train leaders by taking them along with him on his travels, his missionary journeys. And then he puts period, and here's the, my favorite part. As was the practice of the Savior. He spent time with me. Three years, day in and day out. And Paul spent time with Timothy. By the time he wrote this verse, Paul was at the end of his missionary career, probably in prison, getting ready to get beheaded. And he had to write this charge to his most faithful, trusted disciple, Timothy. And their missionary endeavor, their work together, took 14 years to get from Acts chapter 16, verse 1, when he first came across Timothy, to when he wrote this. So think about a 14-year process. Now, I'm not saying I, I shared this with the men in our church, and one guy goes, Perez, are you saying that we have to do 14 years of training? We only been doing it two. No, I'm not saying that, but it's just the principle that there's no shortcuts mm -hmm. to mentoring and getting people to be faithful. Those of us that are in the church world, we know that. So Acts 16, 1 through 4, I'll just kind of read this, I put it in my notes, it says this, Paul came to Derby and Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. Skip a little bit, chapter, verse 2, the believers spoke well of him, so it's important to get, you know, good church recommendations, they spoke well of him, and so Paul, it says in verse 3, wanted to take him along with him on the journey. And then Timothy is only mentioned four other times in the book of Acts. Almost symbolic 
chapter 17, verse 14, 18, 5, 19, 22, and then 20, verse 4. But somewhere in that process, as Timothy is just this new young man who coming, coming along with Paul, he transitioned from maybe a novice or apprentice to a trusted disciple, to the point where he leaves them in Ephesus. And actually, Philippians chapter 2, 22 says this about Timothy. But you know that Timothy has proved himself faithful. So I guess my thesis was this, that when I shared that scripture, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable men, that might have been going on in the head of Timothy. That his relationship with Paul over the years now kind of was reflected in his mind, and now he's thinking, how am I going to do the same thing? And he probably reflects back how Paul did it with him, and now it's his turn. By the way, um, if you look right before Acts chapter 16, remember right before that, what incident occurred? Paul and Barnabas split off. If you actually look at the chronology of that, they were together 14 years. You know, from the time of Paul's conversion, maybe 35, 36 AD, to the time of the Jerusalem conference, 51, that's about a 14-year stretch. They split off, and then Paul takes on a new guy. 14 years later, he's writing this. So Luke knew what he was doing. He was just showing this process takes time. And I have a Bible somewhere. I have to use my Bible, but I forgot it. Because it happens when you're nervous and you go to Jeff Owens' class. I have it in here. Okay, so that's kind of a little bit of explaining my theology for, for this. Is that clear? Pretty simple? Okay, I just wanted you to get that little background. So now I want to go into the second part because that's kind of a little background of um, my theology, I guess, or just entrusting process. Let me get to 2 Timothy. I do want to read a verse. This process is an organic process, as I mentioned, because it's the process, maybe another way of thinking of it is when Paul told Timothy to entrust reliable men, Maybe in Timothy's mind, he was thinking about his grandmother and his mother. Because if you look in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says this. And I'll start from verse 3. I thank God whom I serve. This is Paul. As my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears. And I wonder, what was he crying about? You know, is he struggling in his faith? Um, this was the first time I thought of not wanting to teach this class. There had been some personal things going on in my life where I said, man, I don't want to teach this year at Pepperdine because I was discouraged. But then I thought, if I don't teach, I don't get the 75% discount. <laughs> so, so, anyways, here I am. So, anyways, I just, you know, what's going on when, you, when you're a preacher, and you're a human too, I remember my preacher, Professor Dave Bland, said this, what's happening in the moment is more important than your personal problems at the time. And I've always kept that in mind. So when I preach on Sunday, I have to practice my sermons, not so that I can be a better speaker, so that God can cleanse my heart. Mm -hmm. So that when I'm before the people, I'm giving you the best that God has worked. This is the best of Bob Perez that I can show you right now. And those of us that are in the pulpit remember that. Try not to let our personal agendas affect 
the people, because remember what happened to Moses, <laughs> he hit the rock. <laughs> Instead of talking, and it can happen to us. And that's always something in my mind. Okay, So look what he says. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you. So just as Timothy's family passed on the faith from his grandparent, Lois, to his mother, Eunice, and them to him, this same process is what Paul is now asking Timothy to continue. Okay, so there's a little background. So what I want to do now is jump over to Santa Paula's background because that verse was my theme verse, a model verse to work with our men. And here's the background, the backstory of Santa Paula. Um, these are the symbolic pictures that represent Santa Paula. For the past three years, uh, the leaders in Santa Paula and uh, Kenny is one of them. He's been in almost every meeting. Kenny, raise your hand. Um, we have intentionally <laughs> attempted to generate trust between our two language groups for the future stability and growth of the whole church. Not the English-speaking church, not the Spanish-speaking, but the whole church. The ultimate goal was to appoint elders. That's what my goal is. My solution to the problems of doctrinal differences, cultural differences, whatever differences we have, is say, let's get a group of elders from the English group, from the Spanish church, and get together, and we'll all just get along. Like, you know, was it Rodney King to say, let's all get along? <laughs> and that doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work. So the ultimate goal was to appoint elders to solve the solutions to our problems. And so when I did my research and read, looked at a bunch of case studies of multi-ethnic, multi, -ethnic, multi uh, I guess, cultural churches similar to ours. Every church that I studied, within three or four years, unless they worked out their theological differences or their plans, they ended up splitting within two or three years. So when I started reading that, after I told the men that we were appointing elders, and I told them I changed my mind, boy, did we get some backlash. And I told them I backed off, and I tried to explain the reason. The reason why we backed off, because other churches that prematurely just scanned the horizon from the list of 1 Timothy, put men in place, not going over their personality differences, theological backgrounds, the philosophical differences, ended up just clashing within three years, and in a small church that can damage a, a church really quick. That if we start something, and then we end up fighting and split. And those of us that maybe have been in church long enough know that that's already happened in the church. The churches do divide. So that caused me to back off. So that was my project. I, that's how that began my dissertation, that we backed off from appointing elders to asking the men if you would please bear with me. And I told them that for two years, let's just meet together the last Sunday of every month and try and hash out our differences and generate trust instead of appointing elders. And then when we get to where we are now, let's see what happens. So, let me state this. Now that fast forward to 2019, May 1st. Okay, all right, it's okay. Um, don't worry about it. That happened in Jeff Walling's class, too, okay? <laughs> so um, after two years or three years of hard work and meeting together and trying to work out our differences, we have come to the conclusion um, that we're stuck. We're at a standstill. It was confirmed whenever Hufford was here, my chairman, 
and he says, you guys got to get two or three guys from the English group, two or three guys from the Spanish group, and hash out your differences before you go forward. Okay, just wanted to, this is why I said ministry, um, faithfulness to Jesus comes at a cost. We have to count the cost. That's where we're at right now. Okay, we have a meeting at the end of this month, and we're not sure where we're going to go with all this. That's hard when you have some hopeful expectations that everything's just going to be together quick, right? A maturing process. So, next slide. So there's our surf camp. This is the future of our church. I purposely picked this because over there, there's a second guy from there, Roberto Fernandez. He's one of the key leaders in the Hispanic church. Um, Ray Jimenez Jr., there's Bob Perez, that's me, and there's a group of us, and my wife is never in the pictures because she's always taking the pictures. She's right here, but there she is right there. This is at the surf camp last year, and no one knows how to surf in Santa Paula. <laughs> I don't even know how to surf, but we tried to do something different, okay? And then Chris Chestnut, Randy Chestnut's son, he was our keynote speaker last year at surf camp, last year, and then there's me. So that represents our group. So before I go forward with the seven best practices, um, let's go over the Magnificent Seven, okay? And here's where I turn, instead of going into the dissertation, I just want to encourage you. Faithfulness to Jesus comes with a cost. Amen? Those of it comes with a cost. Time, stress, um, I don't have to explain it. And maybe it was that cost as Paul was writing to Timothy, he sees his mentor in prison towards the end of his life. And he maybe backs off a little bit and says, man, I'm not sure. So Paul writes to him, and here's my magnificent seven, my first seven. You know, there they are. There's seven, there are actually eight imperatives. You know what an imperative is? It's a command. And they're specifically directed to Timothy because if you read them in the Greek, they're in the second person singular. And these are all eight of them. Just in the first chapter one from verse eight all the way to chapter two, verse eight, they're specifically directed towards Timothy. And here they are. I'm just going to read it from the text. Join with me in suffering. I get emotional when I share that. If you come to Santa Paula Church of Christ, we're asking you to join with us in suffering. Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's why we do what we do. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And you could go on. And I love this other part as we skip down to verse 11. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and teacher. And then Paul says, that is why I'm suffering. Because he believed that Jesus raised from the dead. dead. And he says, that is why I am suffering in verse 11 or verse 12. Yet, this is no cause for shame. And I think he's making sure that Timothy is not ashamed of Paul being in prison. This is no cause for shame because I know, and this is that famous song, I know whom I have believed in. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That's an interesting verse because I always thought it should have been what Jesus had entrusted to Paul, but Paul turns it around and he says it's what I entrusted to Jesus. So when we're a preacher, we're entrusting 
our very lives and our gospel back to Jesus. But he reverses it. I thought that just something to think about, okay? But Paul then, now he, he flips it around and he says, now Timothy, I want you to do the same. So here's the next imperative. It's in number two. It's verse 13. What you have heard from me, keep. Retain, Timothy. And he says, keep as a pattern of sound teaching. And it's not just the right doctrine in the church. Look what he says right after. This is important. With faith and love in Christ Jesus. We need love if we're in leadership. Amen? Amen. So these, that's why I say these are the, this is, there's no way around it. We need to be filled with this. And then he says in verse 14, this is the third one, guard it. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it. And look what he says. Not with my help, not with studying the right Greek and Hebrew. He says, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you're being filled with God's Spirit just in this class, okay? Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit um, that lives in us. He goes into a couple people that were disloyal to him, Homogenes and Phlygelus. I don't know how to say that name. And then Alexander, the metal worker, at the end. He did me great harm. And sometimes in the church, when people do us harm, we want to be like what Paul wrote in chapter 414b. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Right? So we have to pray that God fills us with love and grace. Amen? We have to. Um, okay, so now the, the, here's where we get to the imperatives that I want to talk about, 4, 5, and 6. Because all I'm showing you is that in trusting to reliable men, my model verse, as I studied it, because in a dissertation, they make you do a whole theology. So I had to study it really carefully. And I realized, hey, this is just one of the eight imperatives that he's giving to Timothy. And the reason why I called it the Magnificent Seven, probably because I was trying to get my seven in there, is because one of them is mentioned twice. Okay, this one. That one. Um, Join with me in suffering is mentioned. It's the same one mentioned twice. So I just said those two count as one. Okay. So he says, be strong, chapter two, chapter two uh, verse one. My son, be strong. And in the Greek, it's in the passive form. And I know it may not mean anything, but it's continually being strengthened. And how are we to be continually being strengthened in Christ? By praying, by being in God. In those times where things aren't going good, go to these lectureships. Coming all the way from Nashville to come here to hear Bob Perez speak, that's important. Think about to come out of your way, to come to something like this, this is a way that you will go back continually strengthened. And we all need that. So he says, continually being strengthened. And then he gets into my theme verse. And the things you have heard me say, entrust to reliable men. Then in chapter 2, verse 3, I love this one because he gives three metaphors with it. Okay? And I don't want to preach too much because I said I would stop this. Okay, how do I go? So you get it. He says, join with me in suffering again. And he gives three metaphors like a good soldier, a good athlete a hard-working farmer, and there's nothing more honorable than being a hard-working minister of the gospel. Amen. All those, those are great metaphors, but to be a minister or an elder in the church, don't be discouraged. And then I'm going to hold this one up, because that's that clip at the end, okay? The last one. Oh, reflect on what I'm saying, the Lord will give you insight. And so the last one I'm holding off to the end. Okay, so... There's my thesis statement. There's my what's at stake here. This is what, on the Bible Project, if you see the picture of this verse, this is it. I took a picture of it, still shot it, 
put it onto my phone, and here it is. Faithfulness to Jesus comes at a, with a cost. Jesus' grace is the source of our power to one, to become like a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, like Jesus and like Paul. So think of Timothy. He's writing him, and he goes, wait a second, Paul, here in prison, do I want to be like you? And by the way, Paul's Savior and our Savior died on a cross. Are you sure you want? So ministry comes at a cost. Does that make sense? I just wanted to bring that out. Okay, so let's go to my second Magnificent Seven. Okay, there's two movies of this, all right? This is the old one, Yul Brynner, James Colburn, Steve McQueen. Those are the only guys I remember. And then this one is Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, and Ethan Hawke. Great movie. I just saw it on TV a few weeks ago. Okay, so here's my second Magnificent Seven. And this came from my dissertation. Okay, it relates to the theology, but this is after three years of work. Okay, so if you turn it over, you'll see. First thing we try to do in trying to generate trust, like it says in trust to reliable men. You, the word trust is in there, but it's basically we have to trust in God first. So the first thing I did as we came together, um, and you may, your church may be run like this, but if you have a business meeting in a church without elders, we usually run our business meetings through Robert's Rules of Orders. And Kenny's our chairman, right? We have, we have a, he's the chairman and they get to manage it. But when you get two language groups together, I was worried about that. And to be honest, when I started the project, um, I don't think I had the charisma to lead. I was a good manager, a good priest, but to lead men and challenge is a whole different ball game. And so uh, what we did was we created a climate of trust by what did I put in my notes? I want to make sure I read this carefully. Oh, by creating a behavior covenant. I was in a class on crisis, conflict, and change, Carlos Gupton, and he gave us an assignment, and I told him, man, I'm real worried about these meetings. Men aren't showing up. We're going to fight in there, doctrinal differences. And he goes, you need to have a behavior covenant. And we did. And it's in my dissertation, and we had six things. And one of the issues that I was worried about is men that weren't used to getting together we're in a habit of not showing up when they want. That's not fair. You know, you do it everyone, you prepare them, and then the next meeting you have to deal with the same thing because the men miss. So we dealt with attendance. They consider it an honor and a blessing to be involved in these meetings. And uh, so anyways, we created a behavior covenant. That's in appendix one of my dissertation. And uh, we read it. It took us six months to hash it out together. And we read it to the church on January 27th. Dan Rodriguez preached the sermon. We read it to the church and uh, we, we worked on it together, and it was, it was a successful at the beginning. Now it seems like we're forgetting about it, okay, as to, now that we're at this point. Okay, secondly, someone has to be the first to trust, okay? Someone has to go first, and here's where ministry comes at a cost. I have a couple funny picks. Okay, what is this? A harpoon. A harpoon, and what is he waiting for? A whale. And as soon as the whale surfaces, what are you going to do? He's going to harpoon it, right? So when you go first and you rise to leadership, which is something that I had to do in this project, you are going to get harpooned. <laughs> Bottom line, that's called the law of the whale. And that's actually in Gary McIntosh's uh, book. And I, I forgot the exact title, but I can give it to you later. But it's in the book, The Law of the Whale. That was on my exam with Everett Hufford last year in contextual theology class. The Law of the Whale. So here's a funny, another funny picture. Tough day at the office, dear. 
<laughs> you come home and you here's the part of, I know it's a funny picture but my my prayer for you all is um, don't get bitter Amen. don't let it get to you to the point where you just don't enjoy it and I have to pray for that God please not let me be this ugly man that I can be at times and be a good man in the heart. when you preach before a church every Sunday you have to clean up quick you know it's hard to do that so there's we someone has to go first and I was the one to lead this project at the beginning and I'm praying that that's why Paul says trust a reliable man he doesn't say even trust a reliable one person only he says you get a team so that's two of the um, seven best practices one is learn to always say me or we um, I'm just gonna read that it says working by consensus because I always met the night before I presented anything to the men with the Spanish-speaking minister even though we disagreed I would go to his house say for Helio this is what we're presenting tomorrow let's go over it so that when we go into the meetings we can say we did this and it, here's what it did for me personally by working through consensus uh, and leadership buy-in, it's a best practice because it minimized my stress. I got to go into the meetings a little more relaxed because Virgilio would take over. When my heart was going like this and someone, Kenny knows me, I get a little defensive sometimes. People that know me, like anyone else, but it shows with me a little bit more than normal. So it minimizes stress, it maximizes cooperation, it levels the playing field, it is a trust builder and it communicates teamwork. So. Always saying we is a principle that I thought was a great practice that came out of our dissertation. Not just it's field tested, but it's something that we did and I still to this day, the night before a meeting, even if we don't meet, I always go to his house, he lives close to me and I give him the outline. And I have to do it bilingually, so I have to give it to him in Spanish. Most, it works better when you just, I'm a face-to-face -face guy. None of this texting stuff, or I wanna just go and tell him, because that's how I work. Um, so number four, we learned that generating trust is more effective in small group in a small group setting. One of the things that we did in this project, and I'm going to explain in the next one, is uh, in the next slide. This is my theory that I'm going to show you a picture of it. Is that um, Liz and I decided to mentor two couples during this whole project when we're meeting together as men. That's the meetings, and then I'm still doing my duties as a preacher and all that stuff. We decided to mentor two couples during this process. That by far exceeded anything in my project. <coughs> Showing hospitality, cooking dinner. We ended up, I was trying to be a teacher and trying to teach them and we ended up just taking Teen Dimensions profile. It's a you know, survey, it's a 20 page document. And we ended up just reading it together and we worked out our differences by just reading it together. That by far is something, please, if you decide to work with people in your church, um, I targeted a new Christian and I targeted someone that me and him, to be honest, clash a little bit. There was intentionality behind it and I prayed that we can generate trust and, and help repair some brokenness and it worked. It really helped. Doesn't mean we'd get along perfect, but it really generated trust because we got to know each other. And it was a process that we worked this. That one worked in a small setting and that's less than six people. Okay. Um, we learned that leader loop models served as the best practice, okay? So you don't know what that is, this is where I get a little nerdy, okay? So here's the leader loop model, okay? Leader loop gives priority to the process of generating trust, okay? Rather than positions that need to be filled, it also 
is a theory that leaders develop more by mentoring other leaders than by getting followers. So this is why I asked those people to be in my home because I wanted to mentor someone that was going to be a leader. And what I did was, because our Hispanic men and English-speaking men were not familiar with theories and all that stuff, I knew they wouldn't buy it. So I tried to, my best, to tie it to 2 Timothy. So here's what I did. I showed them that, and then I showed them this verse. And the things you have heard me say, Paul the mentor, in the presence of many witnesses, you, Timothy, entrust, Timothy the leader, to reliable, uh, reliable men, right, these active followers in the church, because Timothy is to appoint leaders and trust them, and he's not going to pick anybody. He's going to pick people who are active and active members of the church that are doing more than just coming to church on Sunday and they're involved in at least one ministry who will be qualified to teach others and maybe those are the generations of the new Christians you know and some of the kids and in, in our group like maybe my son who is coming to do an internship with us he's 23 years old he might be in this category just a follower of Jesus right now but we have to mentor and the leader loop theory suggests that if we don't loop back and get others involved, we stay up there at the top and it's so much stress. It's not meant to be handled alone. So I, that's what I try to do with the men. So this verse ties into that and it makes sense when he says, that's what Paul told Timothy. He says, hey, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others, okay? That's all I'm gonna do on the leader loop, okay? Because I know you're gonna have questions, okay? I got 10 more minutes and then we have some questions, okay? So look what I did. There's Paul, he's a mentor. Um, Timothy, reliable men, others. I have changed my style of leadership to be the leader and just being in charge of everything to try and get others. I don't mind now as I'm getting older say, hey, you guys do. But you have to train them and really get them ready to, to do this. So this is one of the things as I get older in my life, I'm 58, maybe the next 12 years, I'd like to be shift my role from the leader to more of a mentor and get others to step up. That's a good, that's a theory. And if you're interested in that, there, there's a whole article on this. Everett Hufford wrote it, and it was really good. So I, it's not a theory of specifically related to generating trust, but part of it, there's a part of it that is generating trust. It's the mentoring process, okay? So that's, a, I don't want to give more than that. So we learned that it makes sense to work together. And I did a, a graphing, a, a graph of seven years from 2012 when I was the Spanish-speaking minister, when they asked me to preach in English in 2013, and to now. I did a church growth study to see if that transition affected the church, and we pretty much stayed plateaued, but I've noticed a shift. Um, our English-speaking group has averaged in 2017 and last year maybe about 50 people every Sunday. 52 at the most. We have, of those 52 in our English group, we have 12 people that do all the work. The Pareto principle. And of those 12, nine of the 12 are over 50. And we're getting tired. And if we don't do something, we are gonna just continue not growing. The Spanish speaking group has about 30 to 40 members at time. And I, as I studied it, they have 18 active followers, people that do work. They're involved and they're younger, they have energy, and that's a, that's a potential, that's actually that model of 18 to 12 is 60% ratio, 
they have, that means that ratio coming from Gary McIntosh's book, I forgot, Small Churches Can Grow, 60% ratio of higher people being involved means that you have great potential for growth. If you have 12 out of 52, that's 23%. Anything under 27% is you're on the decline. Here's why it makes sense to work together. Together, it's, I forgot the ratio, it's, let me see, 12 plus 18 is 30, right? 30 out of 82, we shoot up to 46% in the church plateaus. So it stabilizes the church. It makes sense to work together. We learned that building trust must begin, and this was the last hardest thing that I learned in my project. It was like the last article Dr. Hufford gave to me right before I finished my dissertation. He read an article, there was an article saying forming a basic partnership of trust. And the whole theory behind it is that unless you explicitly form a partnership of trust together, that you will never form trust. You will continue to have crisis after crisis after crisis pop up. So that's where we ended our project. That's how my dissertation ended. So, one last thing. Um, this is where I get a little emotional. Harding School of Theology in the library, on the bit on the wall inside the library, is um, it's a big mural, you might say, and it goes it's pretty long. It goes across the whole wall. It's almost like from that corner all the way to the end. And one part of it says, "Be transformed by the renewing of your mind." And what I'd like to ask you to do is to do this, is to remember Jesus Christ. Okay, and what I want to do is, I don't know your situation in your ministries or where you're at, but I want to just encourage you or let the best movie I ever saw, at least one portion of it, and Paul writing to Timothy at the end of his life, to stay and to remember Jesus Christ. And it's from the movie, Paul the Apostle Christ. So it's a four minute clip, and I'm gonna play that for you, and then we can have some question and answers. Okay, so if it doesn't work, then we'll just have the question and answers, because I know this stuff <laughs> happens. It's crazy sometimes, Bill. Oh, those of us that are, we're being recorded, so the class is over, I guess. I'm not sure about that. So let's see if I can get this to work. I can't guarantee you're safe except for Rome. You've already done more than enough. Could you turn off the light? I feel that my finishing this work is most important. I guess there are some things in life worth risking. I shall miss you both. Here, Paul has asked that you would make sure this letter reaches Timothy immediately. Of course. Of course. Do not be afraid. Here's the part that I want you to see. And just absorb it, please. Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us 
us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. wanted to share that clip because I thought it was a great way to end this class. Mm -hmm. yeah.
I guess that was the first next-gen preacher search. <laughs> Paul was a, passing the baton on to Timothy, and that was Luke. And that scene at the end, if you haven't seen the movie, was uh, Luke Grove, a book of Acts, played by Jim Caviezel. And all those people that he saw, who were they? All the people that he had martyred, Paul did. And that was his, in the movie it's interesting, they played that as his, as his thorn in the flesh. That at least I think. Nightmares. Nightmares, and they came to grief. So, dear God, I pray that you bless these people here, that, um, that we are in, entrusted with the honorable task of preaching the gospel, and that I know it affects us, maybe to the point of being hard and bitter, but um, Paul had wrote Timothy to remind him to be filled with love and grace through the help of the Holy Spirit, and that we can continually be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that we can entrust to reliable men. And I know we all want to be that type of people, and women too, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.